Section 23 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7, The Conflict of Creeds and Parties in Germany, by A.F. Pollard. Part 1. The threats of the victorious Catholic majority at Speer and the diplomacy of Philip of Hesse had, despite the forebodings of Luther and the imprecations of Melanchthon, produced a temporary alliance between the Lutheran North and the Zwinglian South, and the summer and autumn of 1529 were spent in attempts to make the Union permanent and to cement it by means of religious agreement. In the secret understanding concluded between Electoral Saxony, Hesse, Nuremberg, Ulm, and Strasbourg at Speer on April 22nd, it was arranged that a conference should be held at Rodach near Coburg in the following June. But this coalition between Lutheran princes and Zwinglian towns had been concealed from the divines, and as soon as it came to their ears, they raised a vehement protest. Melanchthon lamented that his friends had not made even greater concessions at Speer. If they had only repudiated Zwingli and all his works, the Catholics, he thought, might not have hardened their hearts against Luther. And he did his best to dissuade his friends in Nuremberg from participating in the coming Congress at Rodach. Luther not only denounced the idea of defending by force what Melanchthon described as the godless opinions of Zwingli, but denied the right of Lutherans to defend themselves. Resort to arms he considered both wicked and needless. Be ye still, he quoted from Isaiah, and ye shall be holpen. And, while the conference at Rodach succumbed to his opposition, a vast army of Turks was swarming up the banks of the Danube and directing its march on Vienna. Suleiman brandished the sword which Luther refused to grasp. Hungary had failed to resist the Turks by herself, but the Austrian shield, under which she took shelter, afforded no better protection, and Ferdinand only escaped the fate of Louis II because he kept out of the way. Absorbed in the Lutheran conflict, he made no attempts to secure his conquests of 1527, and, when the Turkish invasion began, Zapolya descended from his stronghold in the Carpathians, defeated a handful of Ferdinand's friends, and surrendered the crown of St. Stephen on the scene of the Mohach to the Sultan. Unresisted, the Turkish forces swept over the plains of Hungary, crossed the imperial frontier, and, on September 20th, planted their standards before the walls of Vienna. But over these, the crescent was never destined to wave, and the brilliant defense of Vienna in 1529 stopped the first as a still more famous defense a hundred and fifty years later foiled the last Turkish onslaught on Germany. The valor of the citizens, the excellence of the artillery with which the late Emperor Maximilian had furnished the city, and the early rigor of winter supplied the defects of the Habsburg power, and on October 15th, Suleiman raised the siege. Ferdinand failed to make adequate use of the Sultan's retreat, 
lack of pay caused a mutiny of Lansknechtsha, and, though ground fell into his hands, he could not recapture Buda, and the greater part of Hungary remained under the nominal control of Zapolya, but real control of the Turk. The relief of Vienna was received with mingled feelings in Germany. Luther, who had once denied the duty of Christians to fight the infidel as involving resistance to God's ordinance, had been induced to recant by the imminence of danger and the pressure of popular feeling. In 1529, he exhorted his countrymen to withstand the Turk in language as vigorous as that in which he had urged them to crush the peasants, and the retreat of the Ottoman was generally hailed as a national deliverance. But the joy was not universal, even in Germany. Secular and religious foes of the Habsburgs had offered their aid to Zapolya, while Philip of Hesse lamented the Turkish failure and hoped for another attack. The Turk was in fact the ally of the Reformation, which might have been crushed without his assistance. And to a clear-sighted statesman like Philip, no other issue than ruin seemed possible from the mutual enmity of the two Protestant churches. The abortive result of the meeting at Rodok in June and the abandonment of the adjourned Congress at Schraubach in August only stirred the Landgrave to fresh efforts in the cause of Protestant Union. On the last day in September, he assembled the leading divines of the two communions at his castle of Marburg with a view to smoothing over the religious dissensions which had proved fatal to their political cooperation. The conference was not likely to fail for want of eminent disputants. The two heresiarchs themselves, Luther and Zwingli, were present, and their two chief supporters, Melanchthon and Ecolampadius. The Zwinglian cities of Germany were represented by Bucher and Hedio of Strasbourg, the Lutherans by Justice Jonas and Caspar Krusiger from Wittenberg, Myconius from Gotha, Brenz from Hall, Osiander from Nuremberg, and Stephen Agricola from Augsburg. But they came in different frames of mind. Luther prophesied failure from the first, and it was with the greatest difficulty that Melanchthon could be induced even to discuss accommodation with such impious doctrines as Zwingli's. On the other hand, the Zurich reformer started with sanguine hopes, and with a predisposition to make every possible concession in order to pave the way for the religious and political objects which he and the Landgrave cherished. But these objects were viewed with dislike and suspicion by the Lutheran delegates. Public controversy between Luther and Zwingli had already waxed fierce. Zwingli had first crossed Luther's mental horizon as the ally of Karlstadt, a sinister conjunction the effects of which were not allayed by Zwingli's later developments. The Swiss reformer was a combination of the humanist, the theologian, and the radical, while Luther was a pure theologian. Zwingli's dogmas were softened alike by his classical sympathies and by his contact with practical government. Thus, he would not deny the hope of salvation to moral teachers like Socrates, while Luther thought that the extension of the benefits of the gospel to the heathen, who had never been taught it, deprived it of all its efficacy. The same broad humanity led Zwingli to limit the damning effects of original sin. He shrank from consigning the vast mass of mankind to eternal perdition, 
believed that God's grace might possibly work through more channels than the one selected by Luther, and was inclined to circumscribe that diabolic agency which played so large a part in Luther's theological system and personal experience. Swingley was, in fact, the most modern in mind of all the reformers, while Luther was the most medieval. Luther's conception of truth was theological and not scientific. To him, it was something simple and absolute, not complex and relative. A man either had or had not the spirit of God. There is nothing between heaven and hell. One or the other of us, he wrote with regard to Zwingli, must be the devil's minister. And the idea that both parties might have perceived some different aspect of truth was beyond his comprehension. This dilemma was his favorite dialectical device. It reduced argument to anathema and excluded from the first all chance of agreement. He applied it to political as well as religious discussions, and his inability to grasp the conception of compromise determined his views on the question of non-resistance. If we resist the emperor, he said, we must expel him and become emperor ourselves. Then the emperor will resist, and there will be no end until one party is crushed. Tolerance was not in his nature, and concession in church or in state was to him evidence of indifference or weakness. Truth and falsehood, right and wrong, were both absolute. The papacy embodied abuses. Therefore, the pope was antichrist. Caesar's authority was recognized by Christ. Therefore, all resistance was sin. Between Luther's political doctrines and those of Zwingli, there was as much antipathy as between their theology. Appropriately, the statue of Luther at Worms represents him armed only with the Bible, while that of Zwingli at Zurich bears a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. Zwingli had first been stirred to public protest by a secular evil, the corruption of his country by foreign gold, and political aims were inextricably interwoven with religious objects throughout his career. He hoped for a union, both spiritual and temporal, between Zurich and Bern and the cities of South Germany, by means of which emperor and pope should alike be eliminated and a democratic republic established. Aristocracy, he declared, had always been the ruin of states. Under the influence of this idea, a civic affiliation had been arranged between Constance and Zurich in 1527, and extended to St. Gallen, Basel, Mulhausen in Alsace, and Biel in 1529. And it was partly to further this organization and to counteract the alliance of Austria with the five Catholic cantons that Zwingli journeyed to Marburg. But the primary objects of the conference were theological, and it was on a dispute over the Eucharist that the differences between the two parties came to a head. On all other points, Zwingli went to the limit of concession, but he could not accept the doctrine of consubstantiation. Luther chalked on the table round which they sat, the text, This is my body, and nothing can move him from its literal interpretation. Zwingli, on the other hand, explained the phrase by referring to the sixth chapter of St. John, and declared that is meant only represents. The bread and the wine represented the body and blood, as the portrait represents a real person. 
Christ was only figuratively the door in the true vine, and the Eucharist, instead of being a miracle, was, in his eyes, only a feast of commemoration. This doctrine was anathema to Luther. At the end of the debate, Zwingli offered him his hand, but Luther rejected it, saying, Your spirit is not our spirit. As a final effort at compromise, Luther was induced to draw up the 15 Marburg Articles, of which the Zwinglians signed all but the one on the Eucharist, and it was agreed that each party should moderate the asperity of its language towards the other. But this did not prevent the Lutheran divines from denying that Zwinglians could be members of the Church of Christ, or Luther himself from writing a few days afterwards that they were not only liars, but the very incarnation of lying, deceit, and hypocrisy, as Karlstadt and Zwingli show by their very deeds and words. The hand which had pulled down the Roman church in Germany made the first rent in the church which was beginning to grow up in its place. Zwingli went back to Zurich to meet his death two years later at Kappel, and the Lutherans returned home to ponder on the fate which the approach of Charles V had in store. Their stubborn determination to sacrifice everything on the altar of dogma was as fatal to plans for their internal defense as it had been to their alliance with Zwingli. A few weeks after the Marburg Conference, a meeting was held at Schwablach to consider the basis of common action between the North German princes and the South German cities. As a preparation for this attempt at Concord, Luther drew up another series of 17 articles in which he emphasized the points at issue between him and Zwingli and persuaded the Lutheran princes to admit no one to their alliance who would not subscribe to every single dogma in this formulary. As a natural result, Strasbourg and Ulm refused to sign the articles at Schwabach, and in this refusal they were joined by the other South German cities at a further conference held at Schmalkalden in December. Luther even managed to shake the defensive understanding between Hesse and Saxony by persuading the elector of the unlawfulness of any resistance to the emperor. The reformer was fortified in this attitude by a childlike faith, which Ferdinand was sagacious enough to encourage in Charles's pacific designs. Although the emperor had denounced the protest from Spain, was pledged by his treaty with the pope to the extirpation of heresy, and arrested the Protestant envoys who appeared before him in Italy. So the far-reaching designs of Philip of Hesse and Zwingli for the defense of the Reformation were brought to naught at the moment when the horizon was clouding in every quarter. In May 1530, having in conjunction with Clement VII regulated the affairs of Italy and discussed schemes for regulating those of the world, Charles V crossed the Alps on a second visit to his German dominions. The auspices in 1530 were very different from those of 1521. Then he had left Spain in open rebellion. He was threatened with war by the most powerful state in Europe, and the attitude of the papacy was still doubtful. Now, Spain was reduced to obedience, and the Pope to impotence. France had suffered the greatest defeat of the century. Italy lay at his feet, and Ferdinand had added two kingdoms to the family estate. Over every obstacle, Charles seemed to have triumphed. But in Germany, the universal agitation against Rome had resolved itself into two organized parties which threatened to plunge the nation into civil war. Here, indeed, was the scene of the last of Hercules's labor. Would his good fortune or skill yield him a final triumph?
It is doubtful whether Charles had formed any clear idea of the policy he must adopt, and it is certain that his ignorance of German methods of thought and character, and his incapacity to understand religious enthusiasm, led him to underrate the stubbornness of the forces with which he had to deal. But his inveterate habit of silence stood him in good stead. Luther regarded with awe the monarch who said less in a year than he himself said in a day. Campeggi, who accompanied Charles on his march, daily instilled in his ears the counsels of prompt coercion, and the death of the politic Gattinara at Innsbruck was so opportune a removal of a restraining influence that Lutherans ascribed his end to Italian poison. It was, however, in consistence with the emperor's nature to resort to force before every method of accommodation had been tried and failed. In 1521, he refused to act on the papal bull against Luther without a personal attempt at mediation. In 1530, he would not proceed against the Protestants by force of arms until he had tried the effect of moral suasion, and there is no need to regard the friendly terms in which he summoned the Lutheran princes to the Diet of Augsburg as merely a cloak to conceal his hostile design. The Diet opened on June 20th, 1530, and was very fully attended. Luther, who was still under the ban of the empire, could come no closer than Coburg. His place as preceptor of the Protestant princes was taken by Melanchthon, and the celebrated Confession of Augsburg, though it was based on Luther's Schwabach articles, was exclusively Melanchthon's work. The attitude of the Lutheran divines is well expressed by the tone of this document. They were clearly on the defensive, and the truculent Luther himself, who had dictated terms to the Archbishop of Mainz, was now reduced to craving his favor. Melanchthon was almost prostrated by the fear of religious war, and he thought it could best be averted by an alliance between Catholics and Lutherans against the Zwinglians, whom he regarded as no better than Anabaptists. His object in framing the confession was therefore twofold, to minimize the differences between Lutherans and Catholics, and to exaggerate those between Lutherans and Zwinglians. He hoped thus to heal the breach with the former and complete it with the latter. In form, the confession is an apologia, and not a creed. It does not assert expressly the truth of any dogma, but merely states the fact that such doctrines are taught in Lutheran churches, and justifies that teaching on the ground that it varies little, if at all, from that of the Church of Rome. It does not deny the divine right of the papacy, the character indelebilis of the priesthood, or the existence of seven sacraments. It does not assert the doctrine of predestination, which had brought Luther into conflict with Erasmus. And the doctrine of the Eucharist is so ambiguously expressed that the only fault the Catholics found was its failure to assert categorically the fact of transubstantiation. In view of the substantial agreement which it endeavored to establish between Catholic and Lutheran dogma, it was represented as unjustifiable to exclude the reformers from the Catholic Church. Their only quarrel with their opponents was about traditions and abuses, and their object was not polemic or propaganda, but merely toleration for themselves. This confession was to have been read at a public session of the Diet on June 24th, but, apparently through Ferdinand's intervention, the plan was changed to a private recitation in the Emperor's apartments, and there it was read on the 25th by the Saxon Chancellor, Bayer. Philip of Hesse was loath to subscribe so mild a pronouncement, but eventually it was signed by all the original Protestant princes, with the addition of the elector's son, John Frederick, 
and my two cities, Nuremberg and Reutlingen. But the door was completely shut on the Zwinglians. In vain, Butcher and Capito sought an arrangement with Melanchthon. He would not even consent to see them, lest he should be compromised, and Lutheran pulpits resounded with denunciations of the sacramentarians, as Zwingli and his supporters now began to be called. Zwingli himself, so soon as he read the confession, addressed to Charles a statement of his own belief, in which he threw prudence and fear to the winds. He retracted the concessions he had made to Lutheran views at Marburg, and asserted his differences from the Catholic Church in such plain terms that Melanchthon said he was mad. The cities of Upper Germany were not prepared for such extremities. But, cut off from the Lutheran communion, they were compelled to draw up a confession of their own, which was named the Tetrapolitana from the four cities, Strasbourg, Constance, Lindau, and Memmingen, which signed it. It was mainly the work of Butcher, was completed on July 11th, and, while Zwinglian in essence, made a serious attempt to approach the doctrines of Wittenberg. It appears to have been the hope of the Protestants, and probably of Charles also, that the emperor would be able to make himself the mediator between the Lutherans and Catholics, and to effect an agreement by inducing each side to make concessions. But for the moment, the Catholics distrusted Charles more than the Protestants did. They had secular as well as ecclesiastical grievances. They denounced the treaties concluded in Italy as wanting their concurrence. They were horrified at the example set by Charles in secularizing the See of Utrecht, and they refused to confirm the Pope's grant of ecclesiastical revenues to Ferdinand, while the Orthodox Wittelsbachs were moving heaven and earth to prevent the election of Charles's brother as King of the Romans. They were thus by no means disposed to place themselves in the Emperor's hands. They insisted, rather, that they should determine the Empire's policy, and that Charles should merely execute their decrees. And, lacking the Emperor's broader outlook, they were less inclined to make concessions to peace. It was the growing conviction that Charles was a helpless tool in the hands of their enemies which caused a revulsion of the Protestant feeling in his favor. Yet the Catholics were not all in favor of extreme courses, and either Melanchthon's moderation or the effect of twelve years' criticism produced some modification of Catholic dogma, as expressed in the confutation of the Confession drawn up by Eck, Faber, Cochleus, and others, and presented on August 3rd. The doctrine of good works was so defined as to guard against the previous popular abuses of it, and in other respects there were signs of the process of purifying Catholic dogma, which had commenced at the Congress of Ratisbon in 1524, and was completed at the Council of Trent. But these concessions were too slight to satisfy even Melanchthon, and the Protestant princes were not frightened into submission by the threats of Charles that, unless they returned to the Catholic fold, he would proceed against them as became the protector and steward of the church. Neither side was, however, prepared for religious war, and, when the computation in Charles's menaces failed to precipitate unity, a series of confused and lengthy negotiations between the various parties, the emperor, the pope, the Catholic majority, and the Lutherans, was initiated. In the course of these, Melanchthon receded still further from the Protestant standpoint. He offered on behalf of the Lutherans to recognize episcopal authority, auricular confession and fasts, and undertook to regard the communion in both kinds and the marriage of priests, which he had before demanded, 
as merely temporary concessions pending the convocation of a general council. He even went so far as to assert that the Lutherans admitted papal authority, adhered to papal doctrine, and that this was the reason for their unpopularity in Germany. On the other hand, the Catholic members of the commission appointed to discuss the question were ready to concede a communion sub utraque, on condition that the Lutherans would acknowledge communion in one kind to be equally valid, and declare the adoption of either form to be a matter of indifference. Melanchthon was prepared to make these admissions, but his party refused to follow him any further. Luther grew restive at Coburg, and began to talk of the impossibility of reconciling Christ with Filial, and Luther with the Pope. To restore episcopal jurisdiction was, he thought, equivalent to putting their necks in the hangman's rope. And on September 20th, he expressed a preference for risking war to making further concessions. If the Catholics would not receive the confession or the gospel, he wrote to Melanchthon with a characteristic allusion to Judas, let them go to their own place. The princes had never been so timorous as the divines. They were not so much concerned for the unity of the empire as Melanchthon was for that of the church. Philip of Hesse told the emperor he would sacrifice life and limb for his faith, and, long before the deed had reached its conclusion, he rode off without asking the emperor's leave. The elector's fortitude was such that Luther declared the Diet of Augsburg had made him into a hero, and lesser princes were not less constant. Their steadfastness and the uncompromising attitude of the Catholics stiffened the backs of the Lutheran divines, and, in reply to a taunt that the confutation had demolished the confession, they presented an apology for the latter, the tone of which was much less humble. No agreement being now expected, the Catholic majority of the estates drew up a proposal for the recess on September 22nd. The Protestants were given till April 15th to decide whether they would conform or not, and meanwhile they were ordered to make no innovations on their own account, to put no constraint on Catholics in their territories, and to assist the emperor to eradicate Zwinglians and Anabaptists. Against this proposal, the Protestant princes again protested. Fourteen cities, including Augsburg itself, followed their example, and they then departed, leaving the Catholic majority to pursue its own devices and to discover within itself opportunities for division. The failure of Melanchthon's plan of attaining peace with Catholics by breach with the Zwinglians produced a certain reaction of feeling and policy. Luther was, partially at any rate, disabused of his faith in Charles's intentions, and the pressure of common danger facilitated a renewed attempt at union. With this object in view, Bucher, the chief author of the Tetrapolitana, called on Luther at Coburg on September 25th, and was received with surprising favor. Luther even expressed a willingness to lay down his life three times if only the dissensions among the reformers might be healed, and Bucher himself had a genius for accommodation. Under these favorable circumstances, he contrived to evolve a plausible harmonization of the Wittenberg and Tetrapolitan doctrines of the Eucharist, which was sufficient for the day and led to an invitation of the South German cities to the meeting of Protestant powers to be held in December at Schmalkalden. Meanwhile, the Catholic majority of the Diet continued its deliberations at Augsburg. The aid against the Turks, which Charles desired, 
had not yet been voted, and before he obtained it, the emperor had to drop his demand for Ferdinand's ecclesiastical endowment, and promised to press upon the pope the redress of the hundred gravamina, which were once more revived. Substantial concessions to individual electors secured the prospect of Ferdinand's election as King of the Romans, which took place at Cologne on January 5, 1531, and the date concluded with the adoption of the recess on November 19th. The Edict of Worms was to be put into execution, episcopal jurisdictions were to be maintained, and church property to be restored. Of more practical importance than these resolutions was the reconstitution of the Reichskammergericht, which henceforward began to play an important part in imperial politics. It was now organized so as to be an efficient instrument in carrying out the will of the majority, and was solemnly pledged to the suppression of Lutheranism. The campaign was to open not on a field of battle, but in the courts of law, and the attack was to be directed not against the persons of Lutheran princes, but against their secularization of church property. Countless suits were already pending before the Kammergericht, and, however inconsistent such a policy may have been in the Habsburgs, who had themselves profited largely by secularization, the law of the empire gave the Kammergericht no option but to decide against the Lutherans, and its decisions would have completely undermined the foundations of the rising Lutheran church. This resort to law instead of to arms is characteristic of Charles's caution. Backed as he was by an overwhelming majority of the Diet, it might seem that the emperor would make short work of the dissident princes and towns. But in German imperial politics, there was usually many a slip between judgment and execution. And of the princes who voted for the recess of Augsburg, there were only two, the elector Joachim of Brandenburg and Duke George of Saxony, who were ready to face a civil war for the sake of their convictions. In Germany were reproduced on a smaller scale all those elements of disunion which had made the attempted crusades of the previous century ridiculous fiascos. Each Catholic prince desired the suppression of heresy, but no one would set his face against the enemy for fear of being stabbed in the back by a friend. The rulers of Bavaria and Austria were both unimpeachably orthodox, but Bavaria was again intriguing with Hesse against the House of Habsburg. The emperor himself had few troops and no money. The multiplicity of interests pressing upon his attention prevented his concentration upon any one object and increased his natural indecision of character. Never was his policy more hesitating and circumspect than in 1530-1531, when fortune seemed to have placed the ball at his feet. His inactivity enabled the Protestants to mature their plans and organize an effective bond of resistance. The doctrine of implicit obedience to the emperor broke down as danger approached. The divines naively admitted that they had not before realized that the sovereign power was subject to law. And Luther, acknowledging that he was a child in temporal matters, allowed himself to be persuaded that Charles was not the Caesar of the New Testament, but a governor whose powers were limited by the electors in the same way as the Roman consuls by the Senate, the doges by the Venetian council, and the bishops by his chapter. The Protestants, having already denied that a minority could be bound by a majority of the Diet, now carried the separatist principle a step further 
by declaring that the empire was a federated aristocracy of independent sovereigns who were themselves to judge when and to what extent they would yield obedience to their elected president. It is not, however, fair to charge them with adopting Protestantism in order to further their claims to political independence. It is more correct to say that they extended their particularist ideas in order to protect their religious principles. End of section 23